We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, The Arena, the publisher, Live Right Publishing, the author, Rafi Kohan. Did I get close? Close enough, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, please join me as we welcome Rafi to the clubhouse. Thank you, Rafi. Thanks so much for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, of course. And uh, uh, before we get going, I just want to read, uh, for those mainly listening to the podcast, just so they know who, who we have going tonight. Uh, Rafi is a freelance writer and editor. Formerly, he served as deputy editor at the New York Observer and has written for GQ, Men's Journal, Wall Street Journal, Town and Country, ESPN.com, and more. He lives in New York City and deeply misses the old Yankee Stadium. And we definitely will get to that. Uh, but uh, just to get us going, if you could let us know how, how this book project came about. Yeah, I mean, well, I started working on this book in uh, 2015. I spent all of that year traveling uh, across the country, sort of visiting all these different places. But um, before that, um, well, I mean, just to be really honest about it, uh, the, I had an idea that was to spend a year on, like a season on the road, just uh, um, going around to baseball stadiums, spending like a week with every fan base and kind of, you know, it was basically meant to be a season-long ro season road trip uh, called Away Game. And I wrote up a whole proposal for it and presented it to my agent. And he said, you know, nobody's going to pay for your vacation. Come up with another idea. <laughs> uh -huh. Uh, but then he ended up having lunch with an editor who was just really interested in stadiums. And so he said, oh, you should meet this writer. And so we got together and, and, and together we, you know, we sort of rejiggered my idea and you know, refashioned it to the world of stadiums and how we can kind of dissect stadiums in a new, you know, in a new light, sort of explore the underworlds. And, actually, I mean, and it, was, it was a natural fit for me because I have always been you know, I love going to games, you know, I'm a huge sports fan, and it was always these other sort of elements of the stadium that were kind of fascinating to me. The, you know, the hot dogs being passed out by the vendors, the ticket scalpers, um, you know, outside the stadium, the mascots, you know, shaking for our entertainment, the guys raking the dirt. Uh, so I, I, I don't think, I had never read anything that kind of really explored all those worlds. So for me, I really saw this as a great opportunity to spend a year doing exactly that. Well, it was, it was a lot of fun to read it, so I'm sure it was a lot of fun to live it. It was. It was exhausting, but it was a lot of fun, yeah. Did you, did you go for, was it one year just nonstop, or you came, would come I home? Spent, I spent, you know, over the course of the year, I spent maybe half that time on the road. I mean, while I was in New York, I, I mean, I, as, as you know from the book, I spent a lot of time uh, exploring some of the local right. uh, venues here as well. Um, but basically, I was on the road for about 26 weeks. Um, you know, the rest of the time I was, you know, setting things up and doing, you know, doing background research and other interviews. So it was a, it was a full year of research, reporting, and travel. Uh, I did get to sleep in my own bed a few nights. <laughs> yeah. uh, going into it in, from your imagination, what you thought it could be and what it turned out to be, was it close or, or not? That's a good question. Um, I mean, one of the things that surprised me the most, uh, sort of thinking about, you know, or what, what my expectation of it would have been, was I would have thought that I would have seen a lot more sports than I actually did. Uh, whereas in reality, you get there and you, you know, in bed with a, you know, a groundskeeping crew or, 
you know, a mascot, and basically the game just fades away. Like you're paying attention to everything but the game. Like when you're when you care about the grass, you don't like you, you see the cleats kind of skimming at the top, but you don't care about the ball. You know, right. the ball coming at them. You're you're just laser focused on what it, that aspect of the you know that aspect of the stadium. And so really, I like I mean I, I can't even tell you like. You know, I mean, I could probably come up with some idea of who played which games and maybe who won, but that really wasn't that really wasn't what I ended up paying attention to. So uh, I was sort of shocked by how little sports there was in this year. <laughs> yeah, I, I would be, many years ago. I used to be a sports agent for a long time, and I would find mm -hmm. the same thing at at games. Yeah, you would obviously focus when it was your client who was up or whatever, but yeah. in general, it's. There's not much of a game going on. It's it's kind of everything else. Uh, yeah. Is, which wasn't really that fun from my perspective, but from yours it probably was a lot more. Well, fun. it was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, from uh, I was hanging out with uh, um, you know the head of operations for City Field here in New York, and you know, and all he sees at the game is just like the mustard stains on like the <laughs> condiment cart, and you know, the you know is it, are the vendors getting around as quickly as they should, or is the security guys you know breaking up that fight as quickly as they should be. Um, so yeah, from that perspective, it was really interesting. Right. Um, and and it's amazing how so many of those guys would say like I like I can never go to another game again because all they're paying attention to are like oh, the HVAC ducts up in the corner and right. like you know is, <laughs> is that are they working as they're supposed to be? Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll uh, during the discussion part, I'm going to try as much as we can to keep it to baseball. Okay. Your book obviously deals with all sports. It does. Uh, when we get into the Q&A, definitely feel free to bring up any sports. Don't worry about it. But given that this is the a baseball clubhouse, for this part, we'll try to keep it to baseball. Understood. I'll do my best. But you, don't worry if you go a little off track. I might. Uh, but since it's written about early in the book, I thought it, it could be a good spot to get going with baseball is uh, Wrigley Field. Sure. Uh, and there's a gentleman, Rick uh, Fuse. Is that how you Rick Fuse, quick Rick. Fuse. Yeah. Okay. So maybe speak about him a little. Sure. Um, I mean, some of you guys may have read about him at, in 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 uh, one place or another. Uh, Quick Rick is sort of famed uh, in Wrigley, at least. He operates the um, the electronic portion of the manual scoreboard in Wrigley in center field, which is the balls and strikes and outs. And he's he's got his nickname Quick Rick because he basically it's almost like he knows what was thrown before the ball is thrown. That's how quickly he gets up. Like literally, if you're watching a game there and you see a pitch thrown and you look up at the scoreboard, it's already there. And it's, it's, and it's amazing. And so I, yeah, I spent a little bit of time with him gaining a sense of, he's, he's technically on the grounds crew. He also, but this is just one of his extra duties that he was assigned. And he's been doing it for close to 30 years, I think. I think he started in the late 80s um, with this as an assignment. Uh, what was funny is because, you know, I, I, you know, I was asking about, like, well, what, what are the tells, you know, how do you know, like, if it's going to be a ball or a strike? And eventually, you know, you get a sense of, like, each of the umpires. So, like, okay, when it's going to be a strike, they, you know, step back with their left foot and, like, you know, that the right arm's going up. Um, but there were, you know, there was, uh, um, there were some guys who, you know, intentionally would try to screw him up, you know, <laughs> you know and they would, they would take a long time to call, you know, to call a ball or a strike. And he asked, he asked one of them at one point, be like, you know, what's the deal? Why do you take so long? And he said, it's like, well, it's because I want to fuck up you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so it was that personal. Uh, but yeah, he's a, he, Rick was great to hang out with, um, not just because of uh, his work on the, on the scoreboard, but also one of his new chores is trimming the ivy in, uh, in Wrigley. And 
when I found that out, he asked me, I mean, I asked him if he would, you know, sort of give me a, an ivy trimming lesson. So we got, we got, we went out onto the field together and he let me sort of snip, you know, snip the shooters. I even got, actually at home on my desk, I have a ball that was literally taken out of the ivy, uh, which is maybe my, that might be my favorite memento from the, from the year on the road. And Besides this. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good memento. Yeah. Uh, given that Wrigley is old, uh, I just want to get your thoughts about the old versus the new. And, and we can now get to something that you wrote in your bio. Uh, you, you deeply miss the old Yankee Stadium. Yeah. So I, I just want to get your thoughts. Well, for one, why do you, uh, I, I assume as a Yankee fan, well, you, why do you miss the old Yankee Stadium? Well, I miss the old Yankee Stadium because it was a special place you know, for me personally because I have a lot of memories there. I went to a lot of games there. I grew up going to games there. Um, but also because there, there was a – look, I mean, so much of it might just be like the emotional memory that I'm projecting onto it. But it felt like a special, intimate place where, where big events happened. I mean, the, I mean, I grew up, you know, rooting for the Yankees in the 1990s and the late 80s. They weren't always good, but eventually they were again. And, you know, I remember going to games and feeling that kind of cauldron-esque, uh, you know, feeling of uh, – you know, just the fans sort of lording over the field because, you know, this, the, you know, the upper deck was cantilevered over the lower deck and you just felt like you were about to topple onto the, you know, onto the grass. And, you know, going into the bleachers, which literally was, would be a powder keg of energy every game, mostly because they snuck in, uh, like, bottles of liquor inside of their, like, <laughs> like six-foot subs. Um, that, that was how they did it. Um, you know, they were getting fights, and there would be, you know, but, it, and, and I remember that, like, almost, that feeling of minutes, even, was exciting to me. It just felt like a special place, um, and, one, I mean, actually, one of my, just, this is a small element, but one of my favorite things about walking into old Yankee Stadium was you would walk through, and a lot of you guys probably remember this, any old stadium, really, but you walk through the, like, the dark and dank uh, concourses, and, you know, it smells like spilt beer and whatever else. And then, you know, you walk out into the, into the seating bowl and the field just opens in front of you. And it's just like one of the most magical moments is just seeing this field open, you know, inside of this concrete oyster shell. It's like the pearl in the middle. Um, and like, and every time I went to a game, no matter how many games I went to at Old Yankee Stadium, without fail, like I knew I was there as soon as I, as soon as I walked out from the concourse. And at the new stadiums, look, it makes a lot of sense. They want people up you know, moving around, you know, exploring all the food options, seeing what's for sale. Uh, so you have, you know, you have open concourses where you can see the field from everywhere. And that's great, but you also lose something. Uh, and, you know, I miss Yan old Yankee Stadium for all those reasons, but also because new Yankee Stadium just flat out sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm a Mets fan. I'm not going to yeah. disagree with that. <laughs> Although, I, I, frankly, I, I miss Shea Stadium, and it was a complete dump, but I, yeah. I miss it. Yeah. Yeah. So for the, for the new stadiums, you use a phrase, uh, uh, neighborhoods. Uh, hmm. within an, I, I, right. I, I find that fascinating. If you could just speak about yeah, that. Yeah. We, we, uh, what Jay's talking about is this idea of kind of like targeted experiences, these kind of like segmented areas uh, within stadiums. Like they would, they would refer to them as neighborhoods. And that's, you know, that might be sort of like the luxury club seats behind home plate you know, that look like they're the width of a sofa, you know, on, on TV. Uh, that's a neighborhood and the club behind it. Um, or the kids area out in the outfield or the craft beer bar somewhere else or the tequila bar for the, you know, for the young professionals. 
that these are basically the idea is to appeal to every aspect, every element, you know, of fandom possible, every demographic. There's something for everyone here. And I get that from a perspective, you know, uh, that's, also that's not even necessarily something new is to appeal to non-fans in that way. I mean, Phil Wrigley, you know, when he was in charge of the Cubs, he very blatantly tried to create this atmosphere of having a picnic at the ballpark to appeal to women and children. You know, uh, I, I wrote this in the book, but, you know, Chicago White Sox fans charge that Cubs fans aren't real fans and they go there for the atmosphere. And in that sense, they're not wrong, but it's smart marketing to get people there. That being said, because of the segmented experiences, but not just because of that, but also because of the way that new stadiums have been stratified, I think. You know, the way that you feel very much like you belong in this section and not that section. Uh, we've lost some of that like holistic atmosphere that I felt so much at Yankee Stadium that I still feel when I go to Fenway, that I still feel when I go to Wrigley, Lambeau even, that you're part of a whole. Uh, and that's such a special feeling that you can get when you go to a stadium. It's feeling like you're a part of something, you're a part of a community, you're a part of a fan base. And now it feels like more like you're just part of the buying public, you know? And you know, you just belong to one section or another. So when you go, today, when you would still go to Wrigley or Fenway, you still do feel that? Yeah, I do, absolutely. I mean, Fenway is my number one stadium. Right. Uh, if, I, you know, if I could only, if I would tell someone to go to one game anywhere, it would be going to Fenway. Um, and I feel really connected to Fenway. And I feel partly because I went to some games there when I was younger. And in a weird way, I actually think there's more Yankee history at Fenway than there is at Yankee <laughs> Stadium. Um, so even as a Yankee fan, I feel connected to it. It's just, it's part of a baseball tradition that you just don't get at a place like Yankee Stadium. No, I agree. As, uh, about Fenway, the last time I went, I actually... My seat was right behind one of the poles. Oh, yeah. So I said, for nine innings, I got to look at a pole, and I still loved it. Yeah. You know, it was just a great yeah. experience. Uh, so you, you mentioned a little bit before, but uh, it's a fascinating part, so I just want to go into a little more. There's a, uh, about the groundskeepers, mm. and there's a gentleman, Ed Mangan. Oh, yeah. So maybe uh, <laughs> speak a little bit about Ed and just groundskeepers in general, because I think it's, you know, as you said, while you're there, you're – you're focused on the grass with these guys. Yeah. The fan never pays any attention. Maybe they say, oh, what a beautiful lawn that is, but oh. that's about it. You know? Yeah, well, the only time they pay attention is if something is screwed up. And, like, right. you know, they, they feel that intense pressure, that scrutiny, that either it's perfect or you screwed up and there's no middle ground. I can relate because I have worked as a fact checker for many years. So, you know, it's either <laughs> like it's perfect or you screwed up. There's no, there's no middle ground. Um, but Ed is one of the. I, I, within the groundskeeping communities, there's sort of like different philosophies. Um, a lot of the old school guys, they really believe like you keep your secrets to yourself. It's proprietary. Someone's coming for your job. Uh, the new guys form, you know, they form community. They share their secrets. They say, if I can do my job better and I tell you how to do your job better, then we all get to do our jobs better. Uh, Ed falls into the former category. <laughs> uh, and he's a little prickly, a little uptight. Um, I don't know why he agreed to let me hang out with him uh, and his crew, considering that he didn't actually really hang out with me all that much. Um, but he is a drill master, you know, a drill sergeant. He is, um, you know, has a militaristic uh, type of discipline to what he imposes on his crew. It has to be perfect, it has to be exactly his way. And he's known to be one of the best, you know? Not everything he does is necessarily perfect. Guys complain about the dirt at a Turner Field. Um, but he, you know, he is a master of his craft. He also um, 
doubles as the head of uh, a field director for the Super Bowl, you know, for the NFL. So like he really, I mean, he knows what he's doing when it comes to the grass. Um, but these guys are, you know, they're quirky in their own way, you know, like you're, they're, they're really deep in their own world, you know, they're uh, the sports turf management world. And <laughs> yeah, which is a world I didn't realize was quite as robust as I, uh, as I discovered it to be. Um, but they're, they're, they're fun characters to hang out with. Just a logistics question uh, yeah. in general about the book. So when you wanted to go uh, interview Ed mm -hmm. or Rick, did you you contacted the ball uh, ball club directly, mm -hmm. and then they said no problem, or were there problems trying to get in with these guys? Well, it sort of depends. I mean, there was uh, no problems with. Them. I mean, the ones I ended. I mean, for, for 95 percent of the time, there was no problems. And yeah, I, I mean, it just was a matter of reaching out and explaining who I was and finding the right time to go down. Um, you know, the New York market's a little tougher to get, uh, to get access to. They're a little bit more media trained, <laughs> a little bit more cynical perhaps. Uh, yeah. Yeah. but, uh, so you know, the, I got, I got, I got some no's from the MS, you know, MSG, MSG crew. But other than that, I, everyone was really helpful. I would have guessed. Yeah. 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 Uh, so speaking of New York, uh, so you have a, a, an interesting chapter about that deals with concessions and City Field with a guy, Mike Landine. Mm, the head so, of operations, yeah. Right. So I, I would like you to speak about Mike, but I first want to just read. It's actually a footnote. Okay. But it's a good footnote. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so I just want to read this. I thought it was very entertaining. This is in a chapter called The Secret Life of Stadiums. A parallel anti-foodie trend, it should be noted, are the headline-grabbing Frankenstein monster-style concoctions that try to one-up each other on the gluttony scale and appeal to the 13-year-old in all of us. The Atlanta Braves, for instance, offer the Burgeritza, a 20-ounce beef patty topped with cheddar cheese and bacon encased in two 8-inch pizzas. The Minnesota Twins have the bigger, better burger Bloody Mary, which is a Bloody Mary garnished with a bacon cheeseburger. <laughs> And the Milwaukee Brewers have deep-fried nachos on a stick. Not to be outdone, the Texas Rangers have a whole menu's worth of crazy options, including fried s'morios and the boomstick, a two-foot-long hot dog covered in chili, nacho cheese, and onions. So the boomstick actually doesn't sound as crazy as the other ones, but the reason I included that, I want to know. It's two feet. Is, is, it is two feet, <laughs> but also it's widely credited as being, as being the food item that launched this, this trend, right. um, uh, which is you know, from a concession company named Delaware North, which is based up in, um, uh, up in Buffalo. And uh, so, yeah, that was like one of the first kind of like over-the-top uh, – you know, not to be outdone uh, menu items. So that's why I felt like it was important, <laughs> important to include the boomstick. Yeah. You didn't try these other ones, I take it. No, you know what? I didn't try a lot of the stadium food. A lot of people ask me like, what my, where my, where the favorite food was and whatever. But again, the same thing as like not watching a lot of sports. I wasn't necessarily sampling all of the concession options either. Um, so no, I did not get to try the s'morios. I did not try. I did not try a lot of them. Now, what about Mike with at City Field? I, I just uh, as a as a, what was that experience like? Well, it actually was really great um, being sort of invited back, um, you know, behind you know behind the scenes to take a look under the hood of the food operations in particular is what I was looking at at City Field, because as you know, City Field is really known for in the same way that you know the Boomstick led this anti-foodie trend that City Field has really led the, the the foodie trend for stadiums. They didn't necessarily invent it, but they kind of pioneered it as in you know 
in terms of the mainstream and being popularized. Um, and a lot of that goes back to Mike Landy himself, who has been with the team for a long time, and prior to that was with Aramark, which is their concessions company. And what makes them so special is this unique uh, contract arrangement that they have with Aramark, which is typically, um, you know, teams just say, you run the show on the food, you give us X percent. And that's great as long as, you know, fans are coming in, the team's winning, people are buying food. But as soon as you have a down season, fans aren't coming as much, they're starting to skimp on, skimp on, uh, skimp on, the, on, the, on, the, on the food, try to, you know, you know, widen their margins, and the fan experience just goes downhill. With the Mets, what Mike did is he, he set up a deal where they are, they got skin in the game. Like, they, so therefore, like, they will lose money when Aramark loses money. Uh, they'll make money when Aramark makes money, and it's allowed them to be a little bit more macroscopic in terms of the decisions they make. They say, yes, we can bring in Danny Meyer and have Shake Shack. Yes, we can bring in Blue Smoke. We can bring in Josh Capone and David Chang. Um, and we won't have the same margins, but we're going to make less too. We can bring in gluten-free options. We can bring in vegetarian. And part of this is also because just like as things like the regional cable deals, you know, reach stratospheric heights in terms of like what teams are making, the revenue from food is not that big of a deal. Uh, so they can say this can be a value add for fans. You know, we won't make as much money, but we'll make your experience better. And Mike was really smart and forward thinking to notice all, you know, to know all of that. And he also just operationally was streamlined the whole, you know, the whole building. Like they got all the bathrooms are stacked, all the all the kitchens are stacked. Uh, it's just everything is really smooth. And like they run, you know, they just they just run like a well-oiled machine. He had a great um, story when I told them we were there, we were walking around, and so so the busiest time supposedly is from like the hour before first pitch until the second inning. That's like when people buy the most food. Um, although a couple of people told me that technically you, that you really shouldn't buy food to the fourth inning because they, they sell like reheated meat for the first uh, couple of innings. Not specifically at City, so I won't, I won't, I won't uh, say that's, that's true for them. Um, but we were walking around in like the first inning and there were no lines. And I'm like, Mike, you have to be worried that like nobody's buying food. And he said, actually, you know, uh, this is exactly how it's supposed to be. Like they're not supposed to be lines because we're so like we're so just like geared up and ready to run when people come here and order food that there won't be lines. And when they hosted All Star Weekend, uh, there were no lines. Like they were just churning it out and they were just they were just totally ready to go. And I mean, then I have the numbers in there. I, I can't cite them off the top of my head, but they're just astounding in terms of like how many pounds of pastrami and shrimp you know they gave out over the course of three days. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, they, I mean, City Field has it, when it comes to food, you know, we can't say the same about the Mets on the field, necessarily, <laughs> but when it comes to food, yeah, they're in good shape. Mike should be the general manager, basically. They, they, they probably do better. <laughs> yeah, if he could sign a double cheeseburger to play second base. Maybe. It's about what they have now. Uh, oh. Mets fans are allowed to say this. Uh, actually, it's funny because a friend of mine is a former major league umpire, and he said, he said, one time he goes, what's the one thing you should never do in a ballpark? And I'm like thinking and thinking. And he said, never buy a hot dog until at least the third inning. There you go. So I, I, since then I haven't. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if, it, if it's true or not, but. It must have been true at some point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so I have a few more things to get into, but if anyone has questions, I'd rather uh, anyone get going. Yes. I also hate the new Yankee Stadium. Yeah. Um, Are I you was, a Yankee fan? Yes, a Yankee fan. Um, but I was there in the postseason, and 
what everyone said was true. It felt amazing. Yeah. It was exciting and alive. A, were you there? And B, what did you think of it? I wasn't. And I actually have a question for you about that. Um, because well, I, I feel like one possibility is, yes, that's absolutely, it, seem, it seems like that is, is reasonable that during the postseason, during this incredible, unlikely season, that the f- true fans, after 10 years, finally, you know, have been priced back into Yankee Stadium and, like, can actually show up and cheer for their team again. But I also wonder, because it's been 10 years, have we also just forgotten what the old stadium felt like? <laughs> I, I mean, I was little when I went, but yeah. I, was like, I loved it, and I remember like that exact yeah. feeling of when you walk through the tunnel, yeah. and it just became green. And I remember the last game I went to Yankee Stadium, and just that feeling, and like that was just so exciting to me. Yeah. And yeah, I was young. I, I think I just took it down when I was 12, 13, but I was just Bragger. I was upset, and I remember walking in and just thinking, it feels like a PR company threw up here. Like it's just, <laughs> it has to be so yeah. And you felt like the soul was coming, it was sort of being breathed it back felt, into yeah, it. Yeah. Every pitch, people were, every time there was two strikes, everyone stood yeah. up. Every time. Yeah. The ninth, well, I, I mean, that's that. so great to hear. And it's, I mean, I wonder what happens from there. Like, you know, does it, rev- next season, does it have that feeling again? Or does it, re- for 162 games, does it revert back to the old feeling? Um, or, or I don't know, maybe also it's just like, you know, we're all kind of prisoners of our own memories. And for me, I'll never forget what, you know, old Yankee Stadium was, but a new generation will, you know, embrace, you know, with the baby bombers coming of age and we got a really exciting, hopefully, you know, team for years to come. And they're going to say, what are you talking about, old man? Like, this place is great. Uh, you know, I'll just be cranky and curmudgeonly. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that's totally fair because, like, you know, so much of sports is about creating new memories and new traditions, um, new rituals, and it takes time to wear a place in. You know, to get a little get a little dirt on the uniform. So I think I think it's totally reasonable that New Yankee Stadium can become a, like a really special place too. Um, but it's going to be completely about the fans. I'd like to say something concerning Yankee Stadium. I went to the original stadium when I was a kid. I went to Bat Day in 1972, 1973, and I was going to complete all of it. I was 10, 11 years old, because I used to watch the games on my black and white TV. So when I went to the original stadium and saw the stadium for the first time in color, it just blew me away. The gleaming white facade, the green grass, and I'm, I'm seeing it in color for the first time. And I remember standing there, watching them water the infield dirt, wondering why are they watering the dirt? It's dirt. <laughs> I thought that was the weirdest thing. Until later on, I found out it's because they keep the dust down. I said, okay. But the thing is, when they when they closed the stadium and remodeled it, and when they opened it back up in 1976, to me it was just a whole new stadium, different mm-hmm. stadium. It wasn't yes. the same Yankee Stadium. So when they closed it in 2008 and eventually tore it, I didn't feel bad about it. Yeah. Because it wasn't the Yankee Stadium that. I mean, it was nice. I liked it. Right. It was nice, I watched the 77 World Series. It was great, nice stadium, but it wasn't yet. It was a different stadium. It yeah. Was just. So that speaks exactly to that, right? I mean, so much of it is personal memory and kind of where we attach, you know, where we, where we attach our emotions and what time we attach our emotions. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm open to the possibility that I'm just being, like, really, <laughs> you know, really stuck in the mud about my experiences with Yankee Stadium. But also, it's, I mean, to me, that's important. Like, I like holding on to that. I imagine you hold on to the, those memories in the same way. I sure do. I like both stadiums, but it, just, it was just a different stadium to me, so it wasn't emotional for me when they closed yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, I like the new one. It's, it, I mean, you know, it's, 
I mean, at least if you're on the line somewhere getting some food, you can still see the right. game. Right. I mean, that's one of the advantages. Well, of you better be able to see the game because you're online for an hour and a half. You can still yeah. you know, miss the whole game. Right. right. Yeah. 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 Like sure. While you're waiting online, Yankee Stadium isn't quite as good as Shea is. No, they're not. I waited 50 minutes in a 10-person line for barbecue. Right. But, yeah. <laughs> I feel similarly, although I like some things about the new stadium. Is you can walk around it a lot. You can sit right. down on the first floor, watch the game the last couple of days. Yeah. The thing that annoys me, I always refer to the slum of Yankee Stadium, and that's Memorial Park out in center field. And mm -hmm. it just annoys yeah, me because I think the Yankees are such a tradition, and I've grown up with that tradition, and I can't understand how you could put this out in center field and call it Memorial Park when it looks so ugly. <laughs> and it's so crappy. <laughs> it makes no sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, taste is in the eye of the beholder, but I agree. I mean, I think that, I mean, I. You know, I, I think Yankee Stadium, you know, to me, it, yeah, it feels too ornate in a lot of ways. It feels really corporate in a lot of ways. It feels like a mall. Um, it doesn't feel like a historic place for the, you know, like just like, like Memorial Park, the, the whole thing. It doesn't feel like it hosts a championship pedigree and tradition. That to me is what's missing. Did you work with the groundskeeper in Boston? They have great Dave Miller. Uh, yeah, they have great. Yeah. I did. Uh, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't work with him. He did let me paint the mound uh, before a game. Uh, I interviewed him, and we and he gave me some good stories because he's really great, actually, at the design. Yeah. Like, yeah. And he showed me. Yeah, and he showed me some of the drawings that they do ahead of time. You know, and they how they map it out with like flags on the field. So I, I was very curious about about that. He showed me one that his daughter drew. Um, it was actually a um, like a sort of like yeah. like. Um, like a like a snaking sort of pattern. Uh, it looked almost like sunbeams uh, coming up, and they actually they actually did the grass like that, not for a game, but they just did it to do it, and they took photos of it, and it was actually sent around as part of an art exhibit. Um, but yeah, I, I talked to Dave. He was great, really sweet guy. Yeah. So since you're a Yankee fan, I assume you saw the game in the playoffs when CC came in for that ball and took out the big giver. Yeah. <laughs> so here's the test: Were you more concerned about his knee? Or the field. You know what? I actually was worried about the field when I saw that. He's a big guy. He can handle the. He can handle the stress. I was. I was worried about the, about the field. I, I. I felt. I felt for the grounds crew. So, what were some of your favorite venues over the year? You talked about Fenway and that. What about yeah. some of the worst ones also? Well, it depends on your, your metrics of worse. I mean, like, the worst one objectively is, uh, you know, Oakland Coliseum, which is which I visited. But, you know, I also uh, started to talk football now, even though, of course, yeah. the A's no, play no, there no, as well. No, yeah. But, you know, I, I spent time with the Raiders fans, and I embedded with Raider Nation and went to a, watch the game in the black hole, uh, witnessed some fights, uh, participated <laughs> in some fights. Uh, and uh, what? I did not. I did not. Uh, I was told that I, I, I wore blue because I thought that was a neutral color, and I told that wasn't good enough. I needed to wear black. Um, but, you know, to me, Oakland, I had a great time at Oakland Coliseum because I, I knew I was going into a, a shitty stadium. So I just, like, I, I was prepared for it. So then when I went there, I wasn't expected to go get great food or to be able to pee whenever I wanted to. <laughs> um, you know, so I could just... Go and really enjoy what it was. So I mean, that, so this uh, this is sort of a tangent, but there's um, this British sociologist named John Williams, and he write, he has an essay in this book called Stadium in the City, and he talks about how, and this is by the way, he wrote this over 20 years ago, 
Uh, and he talked about how all of our stadiums have become Disneyfied in a way. Um, and, you know, and he compares it to like hunting or something. It's like when you go hunting, you don't necessarily expect to have like a lush bathroom and like a craft beer stand. Like you're going to get dirty, like hiding behind the bluff. So like, why can't we have that sort of <laughs> hunting experience going to a game? Why can't we have that kind of like communal freezer ass off on the metal bleacher benches, you know, and just know that like you're going to watch a game. I mean, of course, that nobody's ever going to do that because you're going to make so much more money by having all these other, uh, you know, all these other amenities and, and, and attractions at the stadium. But I think it would be a, such a great experiment for someone to, you know, just to go totally against the curve, go against the grain, and just have something that's just like really purely about the sport. It would just be so interesting. You know, how would people react? Who would come? Uh, would non-fans show up just for that experience, the same way that a non-hunter might go hunting a couple times in their life just to check it out? Uh, I know we're not in hunting country. I've never hunted, but but I would go, you know, and I would pee behind the bush, and I would <laughs> and I would eat trail mix, and I wouldn't like wonder where my Shake Shack burger was. So, uh, before we get to the next question, just a, a comment uh, that uh, I guess uh, speaks to that in some way. This uh, this summer, I did a, about a ten-day road trip. Uh, half with a, a good buddy of mine, who some of his items are in here, and then half by myself, to the Appalachian League. I had never mm. been there during all my years as a sports agent, and I always wanted to go, and I thought, since I had never gone, and in the era of what's going on in this country, I thought it would be a fascinating to see it from yeah. all angles. And the Appalachian League, uh, which for those of you who may not know, the Appalachian League is the lowest of the low of minor league baseball. It's where the guys first go when they're 18 years old, basically, when they're first signed. It's fascinating. T Tennessee, these little tiny towns, these guys coming from uh, the Dominican Republic who don't speak English, and it's, it's a wild uh, mix. Anyway, uh, the Yankees were the only team uh, in that league that basically had amenities to, uh, at a much higher level. Mm -hmm. The other ones were kind of hunting Right. Uh, in a way. <laughs> and it was just, fa I loved it because it was yeah. kind of like, really like a throwback. Total to throwback, me. yeah. And then when I got to the Yankee ballpark, it was really beautiful. The setting, it was in like this national forest, basically. Yeah. But it's like, wow, this is like overdone in some ways. Mm -hmm. uh, it was clo much closer to a, a higher level than, than yeah. that. Yeah. And it was just a. It was an interesting uh, experience in that way. Right. Uh, well, the, maybe the Yankees have gotten better at shaking down those small town cities oh, for oh, subsidies. Oh, they, so, they, yeah. they, they definitely figured it all out. They <laughs> yeah. also had by far the, the largest attendance. They had more people at that game than all the other games I went to wow. combined. So. Wow. Uh, it's funny you say that about shaking down other things. I don't know if, if you saw that with this new tax plan that's been proposed. Uh, they've taken away the uh, municipal bonds for stadiums are no longer Right. The NFL is against that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they've, there's, there have been attempts before to sort of close those loopholes. And, you know, I'm, I'm all for closing yeah. the loopholes. I don't know if I'm for the, for the tax plan, but I'm for that yeah, aspect yeah. of it. But they show their money losers for the cities that back them. They really are. And people, cities are starting to get a little wiser to it, but uh, we're not there yet. Actually, one of the chapters in the book, uh, Super Subsidize Me. Yeah. Uh, it, it actually was... Uh, it's a terrific chapter. And uh, did you know a lot of this before the, the book project or not? I mean, I knew it sort of like generally that 
these felt like scams. You know, it felt like we were all kind of getting shaken down. Um, I hadn't really, you know, gone as deep into the literature. I mean, I spent, I spent time, you know, reading, reading lots of economists' work, interviewing economists across the board. Uh, so I felt like I had a really good sense of it that I could, you know, convey in that chapter. But no, going into it, I mean, it was, it was all learning experience for me. It was all sort of gut. It was all gut feeling going in. And then I felt like I, I got to, now I can say more authoritatively that these are not good economic projects. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very good chapter, by the way, for when you get the book. Uh, yes? So you talked about Oakland, and that's interesting because that flows back to uh, when I was a kid, right? That everybody seemed to be more into the game. Hmm. So how do you feel about hmm. the kind of PSL process, right? So the ticket prices have gone up. They've priced out families. It's now a corporate event. Most, right. most tickets are sold to corporations. I think about it on this because I have PSL. <laughs> <laughs> For which uh, which uh, team? Uh, Jets and uh, I had uh, bottom row for Yankees yeah, I mean, PS, PSLs are, I mean, they're a great, I mean, they're a great gimmick for teams to raise their portion of, of, of uh, you know, uh, stadium construction funds. For those who don't know, PSLs are... Um, Pumpkin spice latte? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. How did you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, That's the next book. <laughs> next book about Starbucks. Um, <laughs> they're uh, all uh, personal seat licenses uh, when you're not in Starbucks. Uh, and it's basically what you have to do is you have to buy a personal seat license just to then purchase a seat. Like it bought, you buy the right to purchase a seat. Um, and like on one hand, it actually makes sense because then the people who are going to the games are the ones funding the stadium, you know, versus all taxpayers funding the stadium. On the other hand, it feels a little greedy when, you know, when we're all, we're paying a lot of money to go to a game to then say, well, you can only have the season tickets if you pay this extra fee. And in terms of what you're talking about, uh, of the wider trend of things becoming more corporatized and, you know, on one, on one hand, that's in terms of like, you know, buying suites and, you know, companies, you know, expensing a row of seats and then just giving out to different clients every game. So you lose that kind of like family feel of knowing who your neighbors are uh, from game to game. But also in the sense that every little aspect of the stadium is uh, sponsored, you know, right. that literally are, like our emotional attachments are for sale. Um, and there's no no one does it better than the Dallas Cowboys. Um, you know they, they on the you know they sell everything. But you also have a hell of a time when you go to Jerry World. You really do. And um, and even when you go on an off day, they sell tours. They make and then, you know they, they do thousands of tours a day. And at the end of the tour, they they let you off on the field. Uh, you get to walk around in the field, which I don't care how old you are, is just always a cool thing to do. And you can toss around a football, you can hang out on the star, you can do whatever. But what they're really doing, and this is, you know, they, uh, they, they, they admit it themselves, is a, a page torn out of the Disney playbook, is they're selling this emotional attachment. They're, they're, you know, you're paying for this emotional attachment. But the emotional attachment is real, and that memory is real. You're gonna remember tossing the football around with your, your dad or your daughter or whoever. Um, even though you paid for it, you know, Jerry Jones has figured out a way to make that feel like a special event. And that's the thing that I think is missing from a lot of places is that it's just becoming corporatized and you lose that emotional aspect. And if you do that, then I don't know eventually what's left of the fandom. So it is, I think it is scary in that way, or at least risky that, that, that you could lose something pretty, pretty important. 
kind okay. of a, kind of a takeoff of, of that and what you just said. Do you think we're already at the point, or we're going to get to the point where it eventually becomes too much? You know, you're seeing NFL, which is supposed to be untouchable yeah. for so long, obviously there's a lot of yeah. social equity issues, but then you know, fan attendance is down. Do you think we'll ever get to the point where people stop going? Yeah, I, I think you can over abuse the fan uh, to the point of no return. I think the NFL does sort of take fans for granted. That's exactly when, as soon as you started your question, I was gonna you know bring up you know the LA situation, the fact that you have. Ram, well, now the Rams are great and people are showing up, but uh, LA is a bandwagon town. But, um, but you know, the Chargers are playing in, in a soccer stadium and they can't even fill the place. Um, and, you know, you can't just move cities and think that people are going to show up. People have an emotional attachment to that team. And it's arrogant, you know, to the, you know, to the X degree to think that you can just move cities, move stadiums, charge people whatever you want. Um, and they're still going to show up. Frankly, I'm happy <laughs> that the NFL has gained a little bit of a comeuppance in that way. I don't think you can just take fans for granted, and I think there will that will come home to roost. I do, absolutely. I don't know when, I don't know what, for how many for which leagues, but for the NFL, it seems like it's happening, and I think that's a good thing, and I hope they learn a lesson. Back to Yankee Stadium, that view from the center field camera. <laughs> you got the batter, the umpire, the catcher, and then all those empty seats. Yeah. What do we do about it? <laughs> Get tear them out and put in smaller seats because even when it's filled, it looks like it's empty. It's because, like I said earlier, they're like the width of a you know of a love seat or, a, or a, of a sofa. I mean, like I get it that you're spending a few hundred dollars of like you know a couple thousand dollars for those seats, but you don't need all that butt space. Uh, like that's I mean that's literally it is that they there there is not enough density. And I know that you're also saying that they're actually just empty a lot of the time. Um, and there's not much you can do about it because when you charge that much, I think a lot of it will be, you know, you know, uh, written off for a, a company. And sometimes they'll come to the game, sometimes they don't. It's just it's that's bound to be the reality when you when you're pricing people out like that. Bobby, my view has always been at the end of the fifth inning, if you're there, open it up, military in uniform yeah. or police or fire department, let them in. But they don't. You know, they they they, they police it pretty pretty strongly. They don't let you down. After a four-hour rain delay, oh, I know. You in. No. Right. Exactly. You could figure it out. That was one of my favorite things about the old Yankee Stadium because I sat I sat through every rain delay, and after you know a three hour rain delay, I was sitting front row. <laughs> you know, and that was one of the perks. <laughs> Any other? Yes. Uh, quick question. You, you touched on it in the book that um, the Green Bay Packers are, are publicly owned. Do you think that's a route that teams might go in the future? There's no chance. There's absolutely no way. The NFL wishes more than anything that the Green Bay Packers were not publicly owned because you don't have as much leverage over the public when it comes to things like stadium funding. Um, in fact, there have been attempts you know, to buy teams from cities. Cities have sued to buy the teams. I think it was the Angels. Uh, they might have been the California Angels at the time. Um, but I think, I, I may be wrong, uh, but the owner of the team, when she passed away, I think in her will, she sort of willed it to the city, to the people, and the league wouldn't allow it. And it's because that leverage is worth so much because the stadium subsidies are worth so much. When you can get $200 million, $500 million, $700 million, your league, your teams become that much more valuable. Like, look at how, you know, the skyrocketing value of teams. And some of that is sort of the arbitrary nature of what a billionaire wants to do with his money is that, like, 
if there's only 30 teams and a, an NBA team gets on the market, it's worth whatever someone will pay for it. It doesn't matter what it's really worth. And you know, having a vanity project uh, of an NBA team might be worth $2.5 billion to you. But it also raises the value just in terms of when you can get free money, free money makes you worth more. Um, so no, that will never happen, but it absolutely should. Yeah. So I work in location-based entertainment is what we call it, the bowling alley business. And we hear a lot, you know, how do you compete with people's couches? Hmm. And people not wanting, you have an amazing experience when you're sitting at home and you can see all the angles and all that stuff. What did you find that arenas and stadiums are doing to compete with that? Well, I mean, for one thing, for NFL stadiums are shrinking their their attendance. I think a lot of a lot of places are, are realizing that they, maybe they overestimated how many people actually want to come out because you are you are definitely competing with that. I mean, one thing they're trying to give you is are these kind of like in stadium you know exclusives, whether it's like access to like seeing players in the locker room or some sort of stat like you know proprietary stat that you know they're working on you know having like wearables on people and then like showing those kind of stats. Um, having replays that they don't show at home because it's true. It's like a much better experience, especially for football, um, to watch on your couch. It's a, it's a game that was made for TV, um, which is why, I mean, so much about it is actually specific. I mean, in, in other sports, it's a little bit different because then it's about more like the fan engagement and, you know, having like games and gimmicks and having some of the, the segmented experiences that I kind of bemoaned a little bit earlier. Um, but I get um, is, is like... The, the tailgating, like the fact, like everything else, like coming there as a community, like feeling, feeling like you're going somewhere where you're getting something that you can't get anywhere else, whether that's connection with like the same three families that you only see, you know, eight Sundays out of the year or seven Saturdays out of the year. Um, and so as long as they can still provide that, you'll still get a core, a core base. But otherwise I think there is a lot of experimentation with just in terms of like, like the food and, or, you know, giveaways, promotions, that kind of thing. Well, I mean, it's a negotiation. Where? Panthers? Carolina. That's Carolina. stupid. Um, yeah, I mean, they, look, I mean, that was one thing when they, um, when everyone went out to the suburbs and we had these concrete donut stadiums um, and they were what a lot of people called walled fortresses or like nuclear reactor stadiums because they're just in the middle of nowhere. And they capture all the dollars because you can't go anywhere else. But one of the things if when you do want to talk about economic activity and sort of like the relationship between uh, a stadium and the city is you there needs to be some re uh, reciprocity between what you're doing and like the businesses around you or else you really can't make the argument that there's any benefit to the city. So if teams are doing that, one, one, it's just short-sighted because they can't make any kind of economic argument, but also it's short-sighted because like that's why people go. I went to a game two or three Sundays ago at the tail end of a bachelor party weekend. We went to Giants Stadium, MetLife Stadium, to a Giants game, and we tailgated, and we didn't go into the game because I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to go into the game. I'm having more fun here hanging out with you guys. So if you were going to crack down on that, you wouldn't have even gotten our parking fee that day. So I don't know. It's, it's, that, that's, a, that's a dangerous game. So during the course of your research and reporting for the book, where did you feel that community spirit, that kind of coming together most? Of, and was it unique to a particular um, sport or a stadium experience? Um, I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly the tailgating is unique to football, and you're going to get that like on a more consistent basis because they're they're one-off weekly events 
uh, I think you can like, you can get it in baseball playoffs. You're going to feel that same kind of community. But on a sort of game-in, game-out basis, I think football is where you're more likely to feel that just in terms of a, any random game type of thing. You know, there is, like, parking lot community. We, so we went to this game uh, a couple weeks ago, and we didn't realize that we didn't have uh, we didn't have ice. So we just were like, oh, shit, we need to, like, call the one person who's not here yet get ice. But no, instead we just walked around and were like, hey, who's got extra ice? And then we realized we didn't have propane. <laughs> uh, we, we had 50 pounds of meat, and we didn't have propane. And we, but then we walked around and we're like, oh, yeah, this guy's got an extra. We're like, just come over, and we'll give you as, you know, as much alcohol as you want. Like, we'll trade you. Uh, and there was, it was just like this. And, and it was like there was somebody like, like uh, you know, me and my friends were like, this is a guy that we wouldn't necessarily be like hanging out with otherwise. But, you know, in the moment, we were like friends. We were buddies. We were part of the same community. Um, Green Bay has a really great community. A lot of the colleges, you know, really you know, have it because there's such a sort of regional identity or, you know, that, that, or community identity that comes from college stadiums and college football in particular. I spent time in Michigan and Penn State. Um, and Raiders absolutely have that. Um, those would be those would be the top ones of the of the ones that I visited that you really felt like there was a sort of like common common thread, common community thread. Yeah. You guys have been no, great. Yeah, those are fantastic yeah. questions. Usually our books are very uh, specific to baseball, and. Uh, we get some real. Oh, sorry about that. No, no, this has been great. We get very uh, a lot of true baseball historians and experts, and the questions get rather uh, arcane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, believe me, there's no question that that uh, no, no answer has never been known. Uh, yeah. Every yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. But these questions were fantastic, and uh, you used up all of my questions, so uh, I have nothing else Excellent. other than to say this is a really fun read, and it's really interesting and. Uh, I'm glad that you went on the road for so long to write this book. Me too. And, uh, and I'm glad that you came here tonight. And again, the name of the book, The Arena, Live Right Publishing, Rafi Kohan, the author. Thank you so much, Rafi. Thank you, Jeff.